how's everybody doing tonight? A couple greats, a couple thumbs up, a couple abstentions, abstentions, is that how you say that? Abstentions, stantons, there's a couple stantons, there's just one stanton. Um, Great. I can feel the, uh, the pressure getting underway in terms of the school semester, so I feel like I see in a lot of your eyes, not all of y'all, so if you don't feel this way, I don't see it in your eyes, but if you do feel this way, I see it in your eyes that you're a little bit tired. <laughs> but, uh, but soldier on, and uh, as John would say, and now Benjamin Lewis, you guys should talk about this, sleep is important, and both of you are now individuals I've talked to recently, so, uh, so get yourself some sleep. Um, I was in the parking lot this morning exciting place to be. I ran into some friends uh, who are getting married just at the end, well, actually, at the beginning of April, April 1st, actually. What a day to get married, okay? So they're getting married on April 1st. They just had their wedding shower, okay, which, uh, by the way, is unfair that all the girls get to go to wedding showers and the guys don't, but my wife went, and I was just talking to them afterwards. I said, oh my gosh, um, you guys got an espresso machine. That's fantastic. Congratulations. And they were extremely excited. But then what they actually said was, we were so overwhelmed yesterday because there were just so many really incredible gifts. There, and, and people were so generous with their things. And we were just actually overwhelmed at, at the generosity that we experienced. And I was like, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, and I was thinking about it today. We're, we're going to be talking about Genesis 2. And in many ways, a wedding shower is giving gifts to set a couple up. To First of all, tell them that you love them. That's probably the biggest thing. But then also to set them up for their life as a married couple. And in so many ways, Genesis 2 is God lavishing gifts on the first man, Adam. And as we walk through it, we're just going just to see how generous and how lavish God is and how good he is through that lens. So we, we have been talking about Genesis 1. We're in this series called uh, Origin Story, walking through Genesis. We just finished with day 6. We're going to hop over day 7 simply because I want to get mostly into this narrative that starts in verse 4 of chapter 2. All right. Now, on the seventh day... God rests. That's all you guys need to know about that for now, okay? <laughs> it's actually an incredibly important um, thing, but that's actually why I don't want to butcher it right this moment. So we're just going to talk about, starting in verse 4, we're going to be jumping in, okay, with this, some might say, second narrative of the same thing. And that can be cause for confusion to some degree, but we're actually going to walk, try and walk through, really, the entirety of chapter 2. Now, last week we were talking primarily about men and women, and how they're incredibly unequal, right? Okay, hopefully you guys are awake. Okay, no, their spiritual equals was actually the, the main idea last week, okay? And this week, we're just going to press pause on talking about men and women in relation to each other, um, and really just try and make sense of the story we find in Genesis 2. And then next week, we're going to basically come back to Genesis 2 one more time and look at it specifically through the lens of the, really the, the New Testament writers and how, what they're taking out of it in terms of uh, how men and women relate to one another in marriage and in the church. So that's where we're headed. So if you'd open up your Bible to Genesis 2, chapter 4, is it discouraging y'all to do that if I have it on the screen? Should I just take it off the screen? 
<laughs> okay. I, I like having it on the screen because then I can write on it and write silly doodles, and all of you can laugh at that. But, but then I said, all right, everyone get your Bibles out, and I saw zero motion. I might have missed someone, but generally speaking, okay, those of you who have your Bibles already had them out. That's what, I, that's what I'm taking from that. Okay. You guys are just ahead of the game. Fantastic. Okay. So let's read verse 4 together. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So before we jump into like the mainline story, the mainline story really doesn't start until you get down to verse 7. Okay? So we have some stuff to understand before that, and it's all it's orientation. How many of you guys went to like a student orientation? For school at some point. Does Wake Tech do, a, do an orientation, Durham Tech? Everyone does, does something like that? Okay, nice. Stanton says, it doesn't, uh, it's not real. I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, come on, Stanton. Where do you even go? You don't even go around here. You do? I, I went to Wake Tech. You did. Yeah. Okay, all right. So this is orientation. We're going to do a quick orientation, all right? First of all, we have something called the Toledot. All right, that's Hebrew for this word generations. All right, can everyone say toledot? Toledot. All right, it's like totally, but in Hebrew, toledot. All right, you can just mark that. Okay, um, generations. What are we talking about with generations, and why is this called a toledot? Well, we see this phrase, these are the generations, multiple times in the book of Genesis, and it's actually very important. Okay, what it essentially ends up being is a title. Okay that orients you, orientation, orients you to what's coming next, okay? So here, we have, these are the generations of what? Yeah, it's on the screen, the heavens and the earth, okay? Um, now, this is interesting, because generations really means descendants, okay? It comes from the word to bear, so it's like, this person bears this person, this person bears this person. In fact, if we go, let's, oh, I'm still writing. I'm going to hop over to Genesis 5. All right. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay? So in chapter 5, we jump and we see this suddenly, okay, we have the same formula, but we have a different person. Instead of the heavens and the earth, here we have Adam. Okay? I'm actually going to hop one more time. Okay? I'm going to go to Genesis 10. All right. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Okay, we just hopped forward significantly. We hopped from Adam all the way up to Noah. And then we can keep doing this throughout the book. Um, we, I actually, I wrote down one more, so I'll, I'll jump there. 11, 10. These are the generations of Shem. Okay, now this is important because it actually breaks up the book of Genesis into different things. And what you'll notice is, even though it says these are the generations of Shem, it doesn't really talk about Shem. It, it talks about who Shem fathered, and then ultimately it ends with a significant descendant. In this case, the call of Abram. All right. By the way, fun fact, okay, this way you cannot leave tonight saying that you did not learn anything, okay? Okay, this is what I want you to learn. All right, you know how, um, you know the word Semite or Semitic? You'll, you'll hear it in the word anti-Semitic, right? So those who have something against Jews will be called anti-Semitic, right? Where does that word come from? Anyone? This was just fascinating to me. It's just one of those like little, okay, you're going to win, you're going to win something at some trivia night from this fact. It actually comes from this guy's name, Shem, okay? So actually, Semites are those that are descendants of Shem. Did you know that? 
You're the most likely person in the room. Okay. <laughs> All right, good, good stuff, guys. Okay, so that wasn't in my notes, but again, now you've learned something, we can pray and we can go home. Um, just kidding. Okay, so just, you know, the Bible is fascinating, guys, and it all ties together. So we're back here. We're actually not in Genesis 1. We're in Genesis 2. And we have this toledot. Now, I think a good way to translate, these are the generations. Oh, too far. <laughs> Stop laughing at me, Alexander. These are the generations. The best way to translate it, actually, I think a helpful way, is this is what became of blah, blah, blah. Okay? So this is what became of, let's say, Adam. Okay, what actually happens is we've actually already learned about Adam, mostly because of these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and it goes into starts talking about Adam. And then as soon as we finish the story of Adam, it says these are the generations of Adam. This is what became of Adam's line, essentially. And then it walks down through Cain, or actually Cain and Abel already happened, but it walks down through other generations after that, okay, up to Noah. So just an interesting way of, a way of saying, this is basically saying these are the generations, this is what happened to the heavens and the earth that we just talked about. This is what became of the heavens and the earth that you just read about in Genesis 1 being created. This, here's what happened to those heavens and earth. Basically, they got flipped upside down. But we're about to tell the story of how the heavens and the earth got to the way that they are now. Okay? This is the story of the heavens and the earth. And it's orienting us on the day that they were created, saying we're going to start, actually, when they were created within that creation. So we're jumping back into, basically, into the creation week. Okay? All right. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. All right. How many of y'all have struggled with this verse? at some point. Nobody. All right, we'll just keep moving. Verse 5, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, what's problematic about verse 5? Anybody? Now, I say problematic. We can put it in quotations so you're not committing yourself to saying there's actually a problem, but there is an apparent contradiction happening here because what's about to happen is God forms the man of the dust from the ground and breathes the breath of life into him, and he becomes a living being. God creates man at this moment. So what is the contradiction? What's that? There is no man. Oh, well, I think it's saying right before this, there wasn't these plants because there wasn't a man there. That's good. But that's actually not the contradiction they're talking about. All right? Yes, that's my beef. Thanks. Thanks, John. All right. So as John says, my beef is sitting on the plate that says... We just went through the, the creation week. Actually, it was like over a month ago now. But plants were created on what day? Three. Okay. When was man created? Day six. All right, we can do math. We can do math together. Okay, so there's an apparent contradiction, and apparently no one here is actually that concerned about it, and that's totally fine. So I just want to tell you, um, there are plenty of ways to actually make sense of this, but if you like open a book that's basically like, I'm going to show you all the contradictions in the Bible. It's going to start right here. It's going to say, look, there's two creation accounts, and they can't, they don't mean the same thing, and, well, they don't mean the same thing, but they're saying they, they're clearly two totally different things that were just kind of squashed together. Well, there's so many reasons that that's not true. Um, but in terms of no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, what are we talking about? Here's what I think we're talking about. Are you guys with me? 
All right, we're gonna deal with a problem that you guys didn't know existed. I'm gonna introduce you to the problem, and then we're gonna solve the problem together, and then we're gonna keep moving forward. All right, so what I, what I think this is essentially saying is this is in a world totally different from the one that you experience today. I think that's what the writer, Moses, is trying to communicate, okay? Uh, and here's how I get there. Now, fair enough, there are some different ways of going about this, but this is the best that I heard slash figured out for myself. So bush of the field, uh, okay, and plant of, of the field. Um, what's going on with those? Well, bush of the field is a word that doesn't occur very often in Scripture, so it's kind of like, what's going on with that? But best explanation is that this is a weed, or not a weed, is a thorny weed. Okay, it's a thorny weed. It shows up in places where, like, in Job, there's a, there's a poor person who is barely surviving by gnawing on this plant, okay? And in the other case, um, actually, I forget exactly who it was that was put underneath a bush in the, in the middle of the wilderness. I think it was Ishmael. So, basically, not very much to go on, but whatever this was, it wasn't around, okay, yet. Now, the other thing is that there was no small plant of the field, okay? Here, I'm just going to cut to the chase. I think what this is referring to is Number one, bush of the field is actually like thorns, okay? Now, thorny bushes would not have existed yet. Why? I don't, yeah, we haven't sinned yet, okay? So certain plants changed or were introduced, such as thorns. Remember in Genesis 3, God says, I'm going to curse the ground because of you, and it will now produce thorns and thistles, Okay? So I think this is saying, this is before there were these like bushy, thorny bushes, and this is before agriculture, no small plant of the field. Now, agriculture in the sense that we think of it where you have to like work the ground, like by the sweat of your brow, okay? So uh, to sum this up, this is basically saying, this is in a world totally different from what you experience because this is pre-thorns and thistles, this is pre-working your tail off to survive, because God wasn't even causing it to rain, and instead a mist was going up and was watering the whole face of the ground. Every indication about the Garden of Eden says that it was watered primarily by, under, I would say, by underground things. I'm not saying it didn't rain at all, but what it says is it was watered from mist coming up and by rivers, okay? So, if you guys followed me on that, fantastic. If you didn't, here's what I want you to know about that. What, we're, what I think the author's saying is, look, I'm introducing you to a world that's totally different from the one that you currently experience today. It's kind of like when your parents say, back when I was a kid, we went outside. We didn't have phones or social media. Okay, that's kind of like, all right, it's kind of like that, but in a much bigger, bigger scale. Okay, it's like saying, look, I want you to think of a time before there was sin. I want you to think of a time actually before Adam fell. And, and in, this, in this crazy world, there were actually mists coming up and watering the face of the ground. This is in the creation week. He's trying to situate it in day six, and we see that. All right. Now we get into what I started out by saying, which was provision. What we're going to see is God begin to provide abundantly for this man, okay? And the first thing he's going to provide, I'm going to call it an intimate creator. He's going to basically provide himself in an extremely intimate and personal manner. All right? What's interesting about this? The Lord God. Can anybody tell me why that's interesting in this chapter as opposed to chapter 1? 
not you, John. Now, Joshua is really, really speaking up. All right, go for it, Josh. It could, I mean, you could think of it, the Lord and God, but we know it's not that, right? It's actually, that was a good try. Applaud Josh for just, like, going out on a limb. Thank you. Wrong, but, but excellent try, though. Uh, what I'm looking for, sometimes, you know, it's hard to know what I'm looking for. Like, you're like, what's weird? Your hair looks weird. I don't know. All right, so verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day. Okay, if we read all the way from chapter 1 through the first couple of verses of chapter 2, we see God. We don't see the Lord God. Okay, now the Lord, when it's all caps like that, what word is that in Hebrew? Yahweh. Yahweh. Yes, it's the personal name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, right? When he asks, who are you? Who, who should I say sent me? And then God replies with his name, I am, right? Yahweh. So we have a, a, a switch in focus here. In chapter 1, it was kind of this zoomed out, I kind of picture it like looking at the globe from outer space, and we see things popping up and things being created, and it's kind of like magnificent and huge. And now in chapter 2, we have this personal name of God, and it's like we zoom in all the way to a patch of dirt in verse 7, okay? So then verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is just such a different way of saying God created man, right? Before it was like he just speaks and planets just start spinning off into space. And this is he kneels down. The, the word for it is anthropomorphic. It kind of makes God look like he himself is kind of man-like because he's literally forming, as if he has hands, forming the man out of dirt and then literally breathing on him to give him life. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It's almost uh, offensive. That, 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 I mean, some people would say, this is offensive to God that you would depict him like this. But there's purpose in depicting him like this primarily because I believe that it's true. But, but there's a purpose that Moses is going to in saying and telling us that this is how it happened. It's saying God was a personal God. And he was concerned to, to let us know that. Have you ever woken up somewhere and not known where you were? Some of you literally just did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so what's upon a time? I, so I don't know. It, it's happened to me in like hotel rooms or like, you know, you're at your friend's house and it's really dark and you wake up and you're like, I, where, what? And it takes you a second and you're like, oh, right, that's where I'm at. Okay. So it happened to me though. What's interesting is it happened to me on a ski slope once. Okay, now that's the bad place to, re okay, but here's what's interesting. It's also, have you ever had it where you kind of slowly wake up from a dream and you realize you're like looking around your room, but you're like motivated still by like the context of the dream? Well, for me, it was like I, I slowly slid from a dream to real life, but that sliding was me realizing that it wasn't a dream and it was actually just real life, okay? So I was basically, I just found myself snowboarding, okay? Just picture like shutting your eyes, opening them, you're on a ski slope, okay? And... You're going. And so I found my brothers and my dad, and I told them, this is the weirdest thing. This feels like a dream. And then 
And, and so I was trying to just explain that to them. Now, later on, they told me, I was actually telling them that like every like three minutes. We would stop, and I'd be like, wow, this is so weird. This feels like a dream. And then like, we'd go a little further. I'd forget that I'd said that. I'd look around, be like, wow, this is really odd. And I'd say, wow, this feels like a dream. And we go a little bit further. And so like, this happened again and again. Of course, they start picking up on the fact that Paul is not right. Something's wrong. So at one point, my dad just like took my shoulder and he was like, Paul, just follow me. Okay? <laughs> Literally just, just follow me, Paul. And at this point, eventually, I started to realize something was weird about this whole situation. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I will follow you down the slope. So I, I do have a vivid memory of coming down. I don't know if you guys have been skiing, but you, know, you can kind of see the lifts at the, at the bottom, some of the buildings. You're getting toward the bottom. And I'm just like literally just following my dad. And I'm starting to actually kind of freak out. Like, this is real. And I have no idea where I'm at and what's going on. But I know I should just be following my dad. Okay. So I, so I start following him, right? And I get to the bottom. Gradually, things come back to me. As you can imagine, I basically just don't know how to snowboard very well and went off a jump and hit my head. Okay. So that's what happened, in case you were wondering. But it was an odd experience. Um, now, I tell all of that because I think it's interesting to think what it was like for Adam. Have you just thought about this? He just, he just wakes up. And, and by the way, think for a moment, what would Adam have seen? What do you think Adam saw when he opened his eyes? Oh, no, actually, this is an open question. Anybody? What's that? Oh, okay. So it was so bright that he was like, my eyes need to adjust. That's actually interesting. I hadn't thought of that. All right. That's good. Anybody else? So after your eyes adjust, yes, John? Yes! So cool! Okay, so... <laughs> Thanks, John. You're, you're annoyingly ahead of me, but uh, I think, and this is somewhat conjecture, but, but think about this. Who do we know was also there? Jesus, okay? You go to John 1, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing was created without Him, right? Everything was made through Him. So we get here, and we have this strange anthropomorphic description, kind of this like man-like personage, personage of God, right? Going and creating Adam, and forming him, and breathing on him. I think that Adam opened his eyes and saw what we call a Christophany, basically the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, before he was born into his future human body, standing over him. Right, you can try that on for size, see what you think of it. Um, there's a little bit of conjecture there, but, but not that much. I would, just, I would just encourage you to think, like, I think that he saw, I think that when he interacted with the Lord, he wasn't just interacting with kind of a disembodied voice. Because we also have, right, what happens in, in Genesis 3 after they sin. Who comes, what's that? I should, I should know it's you, Josh, Yes. 
Yeah, he's walking. He's walking. He's, he's walking and talking to him, okay? So, so the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. By the way, the breath of life is, it seems to be somewhat unique. And I wanted to show you just, just a couple verses. Um, here's in Job. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Okay? Now, what this is basically saying is the, some degree of, of man's capacity to understand wisdom comes from the breath of God inside of him. I think it's what distinguishes us from animals in many ways, right? And so if we could put it this way, it's kind of like the God-like spirit that sets us apart from animals and enables us to have a relationship with God. I don't think dogs have a relationship with God in the way that we do. And I think it points to this. So here's a um, proverb, probably a proverb, 2027. Um, I'm just joking about the prob. So the spirit or breath of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. And actually, that's an interesting, because it also describes the spirit of God, who searches the spirit of God. And uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians. Okay. So pretty cool stuff. Okay. And, and to go back to my main point here, it is God is, is going to be, we're going to start seeing him provide just abundantly for this man, but the first thing he provides is himself, okay, right off the bat, this personal God. He's not, Adam didn't wake up, I don't think he was alone. I think God immediately said, hey, Adam, I'm God. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, so then, um, yeah, I do want to say this one other thing about this. So, Uh, no, I don't. We've got to keep moving. All right. So the next provision we're going to see is, I'm going to call it abundant life in the garden. Okay? A lot of it's connected to the garden. And we're going to watch that. So verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I had one of my favorite moments um, listening to a John Piper sermon, okay? He's in a really intense moment, like going through this passage describing the judgment of God, and then he gets to this part that's about the trees of Lebanon, and he has this really intense voice that he just goes like, what's with the trees? <laughs> and it's like, so there's several points in this passage where I'm like, what's with the bushes? What's with the trees? And then we get to verse 10, What's with the rivers? We like have this like long discourse on the rivers. And so, sorry, it just came to mind. And I thought, if you ever come across something in scripture like that, do a John Piper. And, and, and really, I mean, he, he, he made it work. I mean, he was like, look, there's, there's importance to the trees of Lebanon, you know? And, and so it is here. There is significance to these trees. Well, what's going on? Uh, essentially, and maybe it's not, this isn't rocket science, God is just providing exactly what this man needs. But notice what it says about the trees. Number one, uh, it says that the trees are pleasant to the sight. Pleasant to the sight. Um, now, Kate and I, all right, Kate's in the back. Hey, love. Thanks for coming. Um, see, I, I didn't even say anything about her being late tonight, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
We have been planning our, our own garden. We've been planning actually our own space. Um, Taylor has been helping us um, to plan our outdoor space because she's a horticulture major. Awesome. Okay. So we're getting free work out of Taylor, and we're asking her what would look good. So Kate and I actually went recently to like one of the richest parts of Raleigh and just walked around and looked at yards and dreamed a little bit like, okay, what do you like in a yard? Now, to you guys, this probably sounds just absolutely crazy. I don't know. Some of you might be interested in that if you're like us or Taylor, but otherwise you might be like, I would never take like a Friday night and go <laughs> and just look at yards, but we did. Uh, and the point of it was actually to say like, Let's go and find the most beautiful yards that we can find. Let's go and, and, and see. And it's actually interesting because some yards are going to be like, oh, this is too stuffy. Like, they're all, like, pretty, pretty good. But this one's, you know, this one has just the perfect mix of, like, cozy but, but clean. You know, some are, like, way too cozy. Some are, like, we've got a million things in our yard. We have, there's was, there was one that had, like, a million hedges. It was just, like, little hedges. Tons of hedges, and you're like, I don't know, it's not for me, I'm not a hedge guy. But uh, the point is, there's actually some spaces you walk into that cause you to relax. Now, in, internal spaces are like that too. Have you ever just walked into a space and just been like, ah, oh, yes, this is great. Or have you walked into a space and been like, Ugh! like everything, like crazy colors on the walls, and there's like, I don't know. There's just stuff going on, and you're just like, whoa. Um, I think that God, now just think about this. God is the designer of this garden, and God made it to the extent of God's creative capacity pleasing, okay? So you just walk into it, and you just be like, wow. I could just stand and look at it. And, I, and by the way, it says twice that God put the man there, okay? He's, it says it there, and then it says it in verse 15 that he took the man and he put him there. Well, if you guys ever played like Roller Coaster Tycoon or something like that, one of those tycoon games? Yeah, you basically just like literally like, click and you pick up a person and <laughs> fly across the world. Uh, that's literally what I've pictured every time I've read this. Like, and then, and then Adam was like, oh, <laughs> all right, oh. <laughs> sets him down and eat it. I don't think that's what's actually going on. I, I think it's as likely, again, there's actually a a form of God there with him, I think he's, he leads him. I think, and he says, let's go this way. I want to show you something, okay? Now, as he walks, as Adam is walking, he would be seeing the most beautiful things he's ever seen. Well, partially because he's never seen anything before. <laughs> but, but as he walks, it gets more and more beautiful. And then eventually, God leads him up into just the most pristine space possible. And it is this garden that God has specifically planted and cultivated and organized just for him. So it's pleasing to the sight, and it's good for food. By the way, this is very important. Um, it would be a bummer to go to a party that's just like the best part. Let's say a wedding, all right? The best wedding in the world, and then there's just no food. That would be a, like such a bummer, all right? So if any of you guys are getting married, Make sure. There's, where's Anna? There you are. Yeah, I, sorry. Make sure there's food there, okay? Yeah, <laughs> they'll have Chick-fil-A, says Alexander. Yeah, they'll at least have, have Chick-fil-A, I'm sure. Um, no, but God, so not only is this place beautiful, but God knows Adam's needs, and so he provides everything that he does need, okay? And I, again, it's kind of just fun to think about what was it like in the garden? 
Like, could Adam have eaten too many apricots, you know? And, like, that would be a bad night, you know, like that kind of thing. Or, like, could I, what kind of fruits were there? Because it seems that he could have gotten his entire sustenance just from these trees. And he didn't have to think, okay, if I have five bushels of kale, then I get to go and have the ice cream fruit or something like that. I think that I mean, it was all just like so perfectly suited to him. And so again, it's, it's fun to conjecture a little bit about, about the garden. But also we just see, again, God, what we actually see here is God providing abundantly, okay? Now we also see the tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, for those of us who have read this story, we know what this is. This is explaining something that's going to come in handy later, right? So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we need to know about because that's going to show up in just a few paragraphs in what we have as chapter 3. And we have in the tree of life, same thing. It's going to appear in a later on after the curses when God guards it. But I'll just take a moment and note that in the midst of this incredible lush provision, there is a storm cloud, as it were, on the horizon. It's kind of like when you watch a horror movie and it starts out and you just know it's way too good to be true. You kind of have this sense of foreboding. Well, we naturally have that because we live in this world. And so we can kind of laugh about how fantastic this must have been. And it almost feels like we're talking about a fairy tale. But it was real. And when it's real, then the sense of foreboding increases that much more. And then we see, okay, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there too. Because Genesis 2 ultimately is setting up Genesis 3. It's trying to help us to understand what happened. So then verse 10, here we are. What's with the rivers? <laughs> okay, what's with the rivers? We get like four verses just describing rivers that mostly don't exist anymore. Um, so a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Now, I think this is, I think this serves two main purposes. There might be more. First of all, this river is another way of saying God provided lushly and abundantly. Okay? Uh, the river that flowed out of Eden and watered the garden divided and became four. I mean, we know from the Tigris and the Euphrates, those are massive rivers, right? Well, there was two more that came out, and all of them were sourced from the garden. So you can, only, you can just picture this garden was very, very well watered. Let's just put it that way, okay? Like, so much water. And for people living in Israel, that meant that much more. For the people of Israel who were receiving this text from Moses in its final form, right before they entered the Promised Land, they're going to be hearing, and I don't know if they would have heard this before, it's possible, but they're going to be hearing about this this just wealth of water, and it means something more to them than us who can just turn a faucet. Because water is the, the source of life, and God just had it flowing abundantly in Eden. And more than that, it actually brought blessing to these lands that it went to, right? It just talks about gold and, and precious stones in these lands, right? Now, as a side note, we don't know where the Pishon is or the Gihon. We do know the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, but it's very likely that these aren't in the same place that they were just because of the flood. So it's hard to actually, I mean, it'd be tempting to try and identify where exactly was Eden. Um, I like, I'd like to think that it was somewhere in that area where the Tigris and the Euphrates are now, 
or otherwise, I don't know why the writer um, would say that the Tigris flows east of Assyria. He's kind of a saying, assuming that this is still a helpful landmark. So, seems like it was somewhere in that area before, too. But, all that to say, oh, actually, so that was the first thing. It's lush, it's abundant provision. But beyond that, it also gives it this reality. It's like a reality check. Again, when we're reading through this, it can sound like a fairy tale. But it'd be a different thing if, if I'm talking to you guys and I'm telling you a fairy tale, and then I'm like, and, then, and by the way, like, right by this town, this town is situated right at the, at the mouth of the Mississippi, right, as it flowed into the Gulf of Mexico. And, and talk about, like, real historical landmarks. It actually situates it in a place that we know. And, that, and for them, they're like, oh, these are real rivers. This is a true story. We're not just telling a myth. It might be tempting at this point to say this was a myth. And I think the text is arguing against that by saying, no, this is a real place with real rivers, and it was lush. So, we have, so far, I've kind of pointed out two provisions. First of all, God provided himself. And then he provides this abundant life in the garden. It, it's the garden itself. And then I said abundant life in the garden because of verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And this is, I'm just kind of lumping this in with the garden. Um, he didn't leave the man to just sit around and eat too many apples. Uh, he actually gave him purpose and work to glorify God in that work. And that's one reason that we can be grateful to God today for work. I mean, I, could, I considered actually like trying to spend an entire night just talking about the goodness of work and how we were actually made to work. But this is evidence of that. Um, work itself, you were made to work. And it's not just a result of the fall. Um, work was twisted because of the fall. But it's not like before the fall, we all just sat around and, I don't know, played video games. So, um, verse 16. <laughs> what? Okay. What a mark. Okay. Uh, verse 16. The next provision I want to, I we're going to talk about is this clear command that the Lord gives. Okay? The Lord God commanded the man, first commandment in the Bible, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's tempting for us to look at this and think that God is making a mistake. One, because we know the story. But two, it just looks kind of foolish. Because well, let's just put it this way. It sounds like if I were to tell Thomas, my two-year-old, okay, here is a freshly made cookie. Ooh, look how good it is. All right, I'm going to put it in the middle of the room and leave you there. But you can't eat the cookie. All right? Okay. Let's see how this goes. Like, that's actually how we kind of view Adam in the garden with this tree. I would like to argue that that is not what's going on. Okay. Um, first of all, we see that God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, okay? And we were just told that every tree of the garden is, is really, really good, right? It's pleasing to the sight. It's good for food. By the way, when we read about Eve taking that fruit, those same two things come up. She saw that it's pleasing to the eye and that it's good for food. And then it, she adds one thing, right? And the last thing is that it's desirable to make one wise, okay? So she's been tricked. But 
this tree is not anywhere any, any different than any other tree in the sense of what it actually offers, except for that it offers death. This tree of knowledge of, of good and evil, it offers death. And so I don't think that it offers death by like being poisonous. I thought it was interesting. Everything that God creates is good. And so we could actually even say the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in itself, of itself, was good. It's not as if God poisoned the tree and then put it in the garden. Better to view it as not only a symbol, but primarily a symbol. Okay? It was basically like God saying, I, I'm not going to make it just possible to sin by putting this tree in the garden. I'm going to make it impossible for them to sin accidentally by putting this tree in the garden. I'm going to make it incredibly clear what the danger is that I'm giving them by giving them a choice to serve me. And so if I was to go and be trained as a lineman, right, um, not, in, not football linemen, but like, I always go there in my mind when people say linemen, but you know what I'm talking about? The guys who work on like really high voltage wires, okay? Um, if I was being trained in that, I would want the guy training me to be very clear about which wires I can touch and which wires I should not touch, right? I wouldn't want him to be like, okay, there's some wires that'll kill you. Let's see which, if you can figure out which ones it is, all right? No, they're not going to do that. They're going to say, okay, this wire will kill you, so don't touch that one, right? And even better if that wire is, like, labeled and, like, red, and I don't, no, I've never been up there. I don't know what's labeled, what it looks like, okay? But I'm just guessing they have certain ways of saying, okay, don't touch this until something has happened because you'll die, okay? That's essentially, I think, what God is doing. He's saying, look, I am giving you the ability to walk away from me. We have to admit that, that God has done that. And I want you to understand that that will bring you death. And so I'm going I'm to put a reminder right in the middle of the garden that basically just says, you must obey me, okay? Now I have, a, um, I think, a helpful quote kind of explaining, thinking this through, okay? So this is um, how a guy named Grant Horner described it. We should not think of the garden like this. Okay, Adam, you have rule over all this stuff from kumquats to armadillos. But, oh, oh, sorry, from the deep blue sea to lovely Eve, but you cannot eat the fruit because it has the power of knowledge which God je is jealously withholding from you. Okay, again, that's kind of that, that cookie in the middle of the room interpretation. Rather, we should think of the garden in this way. Adam, you have unimaginable freedom and one centrally located and very simple reminder that your freedom operates under God's ultimate rule. You are Lord but he is the Lord. It's a reminder. He goes on, the tree had a positive function, not a negative one. It was not a mere prohibition, but a reminder functioning as a prohibition. This shows God is not merely some jealous forbidder, but a gracious Lord. He's just making it abundantly clear, and he's putting a reminder right in front of them, saying, remember, that your freedom and your life ultimately comes under my authority. And the second that you subvert that, you will bring death on yourself. So again, I believe that this command is actually another provision. This is actually another element, another uh, way that God is showing a gift and, and grace to this man. He's setting him up for success. 
So, so far we've had, he, God gives him the provision of himself. He gives this abundant garden. Now he's giving clear commands and reminders of what, what needs to be done to obey God. And then finally, <clears throat> it's interesting that this follows the command. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This might be the, the part of this story that most of you are most familiar with. You've probably heard it said, and it is interesting, up to this point, everything has been good. And it's actually very surprising that after all of this incredible goodness, God would say that something's not good. But he points it out. It's not good that this man should be alone. And again, I think it's interesting it comes after this command. God wanted Adam to have a companion in his obedience to God. So I will make him a helper fit for him. This uh, word for <clears throat> fit for, I think, just needs a little bit of explanation, simply because um, a lot of things can, like, can fit me, okay, or, or a man, right? There's a lot of things that can be suitable to me, um, like an office chair, okay? I can have an office chair that just fits me. Uh, it's just the most comfortable office chair. It's got the right balance of, of cushion and and solidness, okay? But it's, so, so we could say that is a suitable office chair, right? And so we need a suitable helper. Well, we could take this to mean like, okay, we're going to make just the perfect, I mean, you can almost picture like a robot, what we think of robots being able to do today, right? It, it, it'll, they'll wake me up in the morning at just the right time. It'll make my breakfast. They'll have all my, my clothes cleaned, and then I can walk out, and, and they'll, re they'll remind me of the calls I need to make that day, and then I get home. They're just going to be the perfect Helper in everything that I'm going to do. Okay. Now, if I describe my wife that way, I hope that you would all would be very offended, right? <laughs> and that's not what this is talking about. When it says a helper fit for him, the word actually has the, the idea of almost like you're looking in a mirror. It's, it's opposite to and therefore corresponding to the man. Okay. So it's not just suitable, but actually corresponding. In other words, the man needs someone he can see eye to eye with. Right? In a mirror, whenever you look at the mirror, no matter where you are, you, you see, you're seeing eye to eye. It's kind of that idea. So the man, God sees the man needs someone with him. And it's not, it's not good for him to be alone. And so we, we have this interesting little story of the Lord God. You know, it mentions that you know, he had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, he brought them before the man. Again, don't picture God just kind of like picking up animals and dropping them in front of Adam. I think that he's there with Adam. He's like, all right, I got a, here's a, here's a, here's a cow. Well, he didn't say cow. Here's this animal. And then Adam's like, okay, I'm going to name that a cow. And as they go, maybe there is a progression. I can just imagine the Lord kind of being, I don't know, humorous because God can be humorous, right? Starting with like, I don't know, like a, a mouse or something and being like, okay, can the mouse help you? <laughs> After you name it? Probably not. Okay. And then eventually he gets like, he moves up through cats and other horrible things and then gets to dog. I'm just picking up on Stephen Davies, you know, hatred for cats. But I'm actually allergic to cats. I don't know if he has any good reason. I think he just hates cats for the sake of hating cats, but I am allergic. So otherwise, cats are nice. Brings a dog. Like, okay, dogs are great. They're good companions, but they're not what we're talking about, right? All right. Um, the evolutionist would say that eventually like a, a chimpanzee comes up and then Adam is like, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. <laughs> uh, 
No, right? Of course not. Okay, so the chimpanzees come and he's like, definitely not. I pass. Um, and then God says, okay, Adam. Now, um, what's interesting about this is, is why did God do this now? Like, why not just make the woman? And it seems like he just wanted to remind the man, hey, I want you to know how much you need someone. Now, now remember this. He actually has God there with him. But still, he, he's shown, God shows him this need for a companion. Not just a companion, but a, but a helper. It does say helper that is corresponding to him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Literally performed surgery. You can almost picture Jesus reaching in and cracking a rib, pulling it out. I don't know how he, how he did it, but crazy. Closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Then he names her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Just like we have man and woman sounding similar, they have the same thing. You have ish and isha. So Ish is man, Isha. She's going to be called Isha because she came out of Ish. All right? And then we have the narrator step in for a moment and say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. Now, there is so much here that we're going to come back to all of this next week because there's so much there. Suffice to say at this moment... <clears throat> that this is the culmination of creation with woman and also the completion. So now God has provided abundantly, and I would say above and beyond. So he's provided himself in relationship. He's provided the garden itself. He's provided clear commands, and now he's provided this helper, suitable, corresponding to man. And again, all of it is evidence of just God's goodness. God's love. He's setting him up. And I think that's what we're supposed to see because the very next thing that happens is the fall in, verse, in chapter 3. And we need to understand something about the fall. And that is, the fall was entirely the fault of the man and the woman. They are in, they're, they're at fault. God set them up perfectly so that they could not say, now even though they tried to, that their circumstances were the cause of their fall. This is a point that I have to remind myself of often, and I would encourage you to think about it. How often do you blame your sin on your circumstances? Starting right here, we are shown where sin comes from, and as Jesus said, it comes out of the heart of man. It's not what is outside of you that goes into you that defiles you, but actually what comes out of you that defiles you. We can't no matter what situation you come from, you do not have an excuse for the sin that you have committed and continue to commit. You are accountable for your sin. Ultimately, when we blame our circumstances, what we're doing is we're blaming God. Just like Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me. Right? 
it was the circumstance that you gave me. Recently, I've been struggling, funny enough, with um, allergies, and I can kind of have a bad attitude about it. And I've been thinking, I was thinking about it this week, you know. And I could easily say to God, you know what? No, I, I, was, I was grumpy with my wife because you gave me allergies, right? This is why I wake up in the morning kind of like, <sighs> no. No, my attitude is entirely mine to own, and we need that reminder. And the last takeaway, <clears throat> and I think what this text teaches us just abundantly, we use the word abundantly a lot, but God is good, and he's the provider. And what happened in the, in the fall changed us, and it changed the world, but it did not change God. God did not change. And so his goodness shown in the garden is still an accurate reflection of his goodness today in your life. God does not give you everything that you want, and that's because we're sinners. And so God now gives us everything that we truly need. But that's how Paul, in, in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how can he not graciously, or with him, graciously give us all things? Paul has this incredible confidence. Look, the love of God, the goodness of God has not, has not diminished whatsoever. In fact, he shows that by this prime example of Jesus Christ dying on a tree for us. And if we believe that, then how can we believe anything different about our circumstances today? That every circumstance that you encounter is actually from the hand of God and will be worked for our good. This is ultimately the cure also to anxiety. And I've talked about it before, but I, I feel like it's worth mentioning again that, that when we're anxious, it's ultimately a lack of faith in God to give us what we need. It's a lack of faith in God to provide for us. And so if you're experiencing anxiety, then there is most likely some root of sin in your life no matter what that anxiety is about in the future, right? Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life because your Father in heaven knows that you need all these things and he'll give them to you. So seek first the kingdom. And so that's my encouragement to you. In light of the goodness of God revealed to Adam, and we see this abundant provision, we don't see that in, in, in our lives necessarily. Like, I don't, um, I'm not living in, in this garden. And yet, this same God is that good to me every day if I'm willing to, to see it. And that's true for you too. We're about to sing a new song about the goodness of Jesus. And just amen and amen. And so often though, we can sing that and we can walk away and then we can be, as I say, grumpy about something. We can be uh, <clears throat> just displeased unhappy, and ultimately that's reflecting the fact that we actually don't believe that God is, is good. Somewhere deep down, we have rejected that truth. And so, I would urge you to fight that by digging down and, under, and, and, and actually attacking that. All right. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band up. We'll sing. Heavenly Father, thanks for this, Lord, your word, and this picture of 
abundance and provision that you give us in chapter 2 of Genesis. And Lord, we, we must confess that this world and the sin in this world cannot be attributed to you. The brokenness is entirely us and the goodness is entirely you. So Lord, would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to see that and understand that in our lives? So that in the day in, day out, the small circumstances, Lord, we would recognize, but Lord, that we recognize sin when it props up and says that you are, are withholding from us. And instead, Lord, we hold on to the truth that you are an abundant provider who does not withhold anything that is good for us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.